Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, and William S. Burroughs may have passed on, but rock is still on the road. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune. Text and drugs and rock and roll author Simon Warner joins us to talk about the beat movement and rock and roll. And later, Jim and I weigh in on Jay-Z's 4th of July firework, Magna Carta Holy Grail. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Ready or not, here I come, you can't hide. Gonna find you and take it slowly. Ready or not, here I come, you can't hide. Gonna find you and make you want me. That is Ready or Not from the Fugees in the mid-90s, back when Lauryn Hill, one of the singers on that track, was a rising star in the pop music industry. She followed that up a few years later with her debut solo album, The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill, a multi-platinum selling record. Now, Lauren Hill is going to prison. She began serving a three-month prison term for failure to pay about a million dollars in taxes over the last decade. According to the court documents, she earned about $2.3 million between 2005-2009. She told the judge, I wasn't able to pay my taxes because I had dropped out of the music business effectively and I was out there to raise my six children. But uh, the assistant U.S. attorney who prosecuted the case was not moved by that argument. She said it's just a parade of excuses centering around her feeling put upon that didn't exempt her from her responsibilities to pay taxes. The judge agreed. She's been sentenced to the prison term. After that, parole supervision for a year. Quite a fall for one of the great pop stars of the 90s. We haven't heard from her in a decade, and now she's going to prison. Greg, right before starting her prison term, Lauren Hill had a last blog post about racism in this country, going all the way back to its founding and how oppression continues and that cycle needs to be broken. She wasn't specifically talking about her case, but obviously that loomed large. Now, the list of musicians who have done time in prison is a long one. Little Wayne Mm -hmm. did a couple of years, beginning in 2007 for marijuana possession. Ja Rule, 28 months for possession of a weapon and tax evasion. But I, I think that the context of the kind of artist, the kind of important artist that Lauryn Hill is, you really have to go back to like Chuck Berry at the height of his career in 1962, being sentenced to three years in prison for violating the Mann Act, or James Brown being imprisoned. In terms of somebody who was that creative and that much in their prime going away, even though she hadn't been productive in recent years. It's just a tragedy to think of her sitting behind bars.
listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is the song Neil and Jack and Me by the progressive rock legends King Crimson. Robert Fripp's band was really wearing its influences on its sleeve with that song, Greg. The Neil and Jack of the title are, of course, Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy, two founding fathers of the beat movement. And that record was called Beat. If you think back to high school when On the Road was a sacred text, or you remember hearing Allen Ginsberg's Howl, I've seen the best minds of my generation, you know something about the beat's influence on literature. Our guest today wants to get you thinking about the beat's influence on rock. Simon Warner is a music journalist and lecturer at the University of Leeds in the UK, and his new book is called Text and Drugs and Rock and Roll, The Beats and Rock Culture. He joins us now from Leeds. Simon, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you for having me. Let's start at the beginning. For people who aren't all that familiar with the beat movement, can you give us your handy capsule definition? Well, the uh, the beat movement or the beat generation was a gathering of writers, we might say artists, musicians and others, but mainly writers who emerged in New York City in the 1940s, but only came to uh, US and world attention in the 1950s. And the three main people involved, a novelist called Jack Kerouac, a poet called Allen Ginsberg, and another novelist called William Burroughs. They were the, the three principal leaders of this literary movement. Here he is, Jack Kerouac. Jack told me a little earlier he was nervous. Are you nervous now? No? Good. Jack, I've uh, got a couple of square questions, but I think the answer would be interesting. How long did it take you to write on the road? Three weeks. How many? Three weeks. Three weeks? Jeez, that's amazing. How long were you on the road itself? Seven years. Seven years. I was on the road once for three weeks, and it took me seven years to write about it. (laughs) Simon, I want to ask the tough question uh, right up front. Why write this book now? You know, I know, I teach English at Columbia College here in Chicago. If I mention the beats, most of the other professors these days roll their eyes. You know, it's kind of in the way that sometimes things go in and out of fashion in the rock world. Like sometimes progressive rock is the squarest thing in the world, and then progressive rock is rediscovered, and all the indie bands are like trying to be Jethro Tull. But the beats definitely seem out to me right now in terms of the coolness factor. What are you putting on an 800-page book about these old, white, misogynist, sexually confused, uh, exclusive of women, you know, about these jerks? The beats have gone in and out of style, in and out of fashion. But I find, I teach a course at my university on the beats and rock and roll, and the students who turn up in large numbers are wide-eyed and open-mouthed to hear about the way Dylan met Ginsberg and how Burroughs met Bowie and how Sonic Youth did this and how Kurt Cobain did the other. Some of the greatest music makers of our popular music era. So many of them have uh, have taken something from the beats, whether it's to do with breaking taboos or breaking rules or expressing honesty in, in their songs. I feel as if without the beats, it's not likely. I, I doubt that that would have happened. But I think you're probably right that the beats are perhaps seen as so last century. But I'm trying to keep their profile up. Now, the sound that dominated the underground when the Beats were making their art in the underground, especially in the 50s, was avant-garde jazz, bebop, right? It wasn't rock and roll. That's right. It was the sound of Harlem spreading south to 52nd Street in New York, this new form of jazz. Musicians like Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, 
had wanted to reject the sort of swing band dance thing that had dominated by the end of the 1930s and they came up with this really quite difficult music cerebral rather than visceral it was about the head rather than the stomach and the Beats loved this this innovation and went along to hear these players in clubs in Manhattan and Burroughs and Ginsburg's poetry. How did it scan along with the rhythms of bebop? Well, these principal writers, in various ways, all try to capture something of the flavour of jazz, certainly Ginsburg and Kerouac. Kerouac wanted to write lines of prose or poetry that captured something of, say, the saxophonist art. He was interested in extemporization, he was interested in, in improvisation. And when he heard figures like Lester Young, Thelonious Monk and so on, he had this idea that if he could write lines that felt like the one long breath of an improvising saxophonist, he was capturing something very special. Now it's jazz, the place is roaring, all beautiful girls in there, one mad brunette at the bar drunk with her boys. One strange chick I remember from somewhere wearing a simple skirt with pockets, her hands in there. Short haircut, slouched, talking to everybody. Up and down the stairs they come. The bartenders are the regular band of Jack and the heavenly drummer who looks up in the sky with blue eyes, with a beard. He's wailing beer caps and bottles and jamming at the cash register and everything is going to the beat. It's the beat generation. It's Bayat. It's the beat to keep. It's the beat of the heart. It's being beat and down in the world and like old time lowdown. And like in ancient civilizations, the slave boatmen rowing galleys to a beat. When Ginsberg came to write his most famous poem, Howl, there's also a suggestion that he thought about the lines of that in terms of the lines of jazz music. They wanted to bring some of that spirit and some of that pulse into their writing. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters, burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night, who poverty and tatters and hollow-eyed and high set up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold water flats floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz, who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated, who passed through universities with radiant cool eyes hallucinating Arkansas and Blake-like tragedy among the scholars of money and war. Now, your book is about the intersection of the beat ideal with rock and roll. Those two movements meet up in the 60s. How did the beat idea and rock initially intersect? I suppose we can turn to one of the greatest figures of that age, Bob Dylan, as one of the, the catalysts for this link, because... By 1963, he was something of a star in Greenwich Village. He was still a member of that uh, folk protest movement. And he happened to meet Allen Ginsberg on December the 26th, 1963, 
at a party at a bookshop. Dylan was this young man with lots of ideas, political, humorous, lyrical, and Ginsberg was drawn to him. Uh, he was some years younger than, than Ginsberg, of course, but these two made friends. After it was over, on the way out, we asked the beat poet Allen Ginsberg what he thought of Bob Dylan. I think he is a very great poet. He's a very lovable genius, and I hope he lives to be 100. And at the end of 1965, when Dylan was on tour in San Francisco, he also got together with Ginsberg and other beat poets outside the famed City Lights bookshop. Dylan, Ginsberg, Robbie Robertson, who was by now playing with um, Dylan, uh, Michael McClure, David Meltzer, other beat poets gathered for a bunch of photographs outside City Lights. And I think we might see this moment as the one where the, the keys of the 50s counterculture are passed to those new figures from, from, from the 60s. Oh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but the next time you see me coming, you better run. Well, Abe said, where you want this killing done? God said, all down Highway 61. And then, of course, we could talk about the Beatles. By 1965, Ginsberg was meeting the Beatles, getting to know McCartney well. We can safely say that the two biggest movers and shakers, Dylan and the Beatles in the 60s, by around the middle of that decade, had befriended the most vociferous, the most active of the, of the beat poets. What accounts for the literary influence seeping into rock and roll? I mean, that's basically what we're talking about here, the Beats uh, meeting the rockers and the two sort of melding their sensibilities. Uh, why do you think the rockers were paying attention to the literary side of things and starting to bring that into their music? What accounted for that? Well, I, I think a couple of things happened. I mean, it's very interesting that what we might see as a sort of highbrow art literature and a more mass art like popular music. You know, why do these two things uh, come together? Popular music, until 65, 66, is regarded as a form that concentrates on moon in June, young love, adolescent issues. I don't need to hold you, hold you tight I just want to dance with you all night In this world there's nothing I would rather do because I'm happy just to dance with you Just to dance with you Is everything I need Before this dance is through I think I love you too I'm so happy when you dance with me But as the 60s unfolds Popular music becomes more proactive, it becomes more interested in politics and drugs, it becomes interested in issues regarding sex and sexuality. And the old-style lyric that has been written by Lieber and Stoller is being displaced by more intellectual ideas. Dylan leaves behind his folk protest period, subterranean homesick blues. This is a great tumbling of abstract ideas, juxtapositions that don't quite fit together. They're playing with ideas in a way that was certainly very confusing, I think, for the audience in 65 and 66. John is in the basement mixing up the medicine. I'm on the pavement thinking about the government. The man in a trench 
coat badge out laid off Says he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off Look out, kid, it's something you did God knows when, but you're doing it again You better duck down the alleyway Looking for a new friend A man in a coonskin cap in a pig pen Wants $11 bills, you only got 10 And the Beatles have already set America alight they also change course with albums like Rubber Soul and Revolver and want to write about issues that go beyond mere adolescent love. And I think in the beats they see something they can draw on. I've got a word or two To say about the things that you do One of Lennon's earliest Dylan-influenced songs is In My Life, where he starts singing about himself. And I think one of the things that the Beats brought to their literature, whether it was poetry or novels, they brought the autobiographical, they, they brought their own lives into play. They started to talk about the things they did, the things they believed in. There are places I remember We're going to take a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, but when we return, more with text and drugs and rock and roll author Simon Warner. We'll hear about the New York poets who went punk. And later, we discover the Holy Grail. Jay-Z's back with a number one album in the country. Of 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRogatis. And that joyful noise comes courtesy of the Fugs, a proto-punk band started by two Greenwich Village poets in the 1960s, Ed Sanders and Tuli Kupferberg. Now, if you're thinking the Fugs lifted those lyrics from beat poet Allen Ginsberg, you're absolutely right. I saw the best minds of my generation rot is a tribute to the Fugs' friend Allen Ginsberg and his landmark poem, Howl. It's just one more example of the intersection we've been talking about this hour between rock and roll and beat literature. We've been chatting with Simon Warner, author of the book Text and Drugs and Rock and Roll, The Beats and Rock Culture. Simon, we've heard about how artists like Dylan and the Beatles drew inspiration from the beat poets. Rock was getting literary. But uh, the influence was also flowing the other way. The Fugs were poets who went rock and roll. These guys realized, hey, poetry doesn't pay. No one pays any attention to poets. This rock star gig, though, is pretty darn cool. Talk about the poets who went rock. Absolutely. I mean, these characters, Ed Sanders and Julie Kupferberg, these two guys are writing poetry, they're singing folk songs, and they suddenly realise that you know, rock and roll in an amplified form is a way of reaching a bigger, wider public. No band does this more outrageously, more humorously, more engagingly than the Fugs from around 1965. And in fact, uh, I think it's in 1968 when, when Ed Sanders turns up on a TV show to debate the hippie thing, the Vietnam thing on television with Kerouac. And uh, yeah. Sanders is a huge admirer of Kerouac. But of course, by this stage, Kerouac is uh, an alcohol-soaked, uh, <laughs> conservative, Republican pro-war man and the whole thing goes horribly wrong. To what extent do you believe that the beat generation is related to the hippies? Oh, what, just... what do they have in common? Was this an evolution from the one uh, to the other? just the older ones. Yeah. So I'm 46 years old. These kids are 18. It's the same movement, which is apparently some kind of Dionysian movement in late civilization. Mm-hmm and which I, I did not intend any more than, I suppose, Dionysius did, or whatever his name was. I believe in order, tenderness, and piety. But this doesn't stop Sanders and Kupferberg, these two innovators, from continuing to make interesting music and words. You ask about my philosophy by Simon, we've got two more names to add to the Poets Gone Rock list. Jim Carroll and Patti Smith. How does that transition happen for them? Initially, Carroll and Smith are interested in poetry principally. They become part of the St. Mark's Project and the Lower East Side. Anne Waldman, who is a great friend and an ally of Ginsburg's in New York, she's actually the director of that venue. And she puts on Carroll, she puts on Smith. And, and in February 1971... Patty Smith gives this amazing performance with Lenny Kay on guitar, but it's, but it's mostly about words. It's mostly about her taboo-breaking, amazing poetry. My mama killed me. My father grieved for me. My little sister, I'm 
Carol, I mean, Jim Carroll was in some ways a tragic genius because he was strung out on heroin for most of his life. And in the later 70s, he manages to bring together his amazing prose, his amazing words, and, and creates the Jim Carroll band. We are talking with Simon Warner, author of Text and Drugs and Rock and Roll, The Beats and Rock Culture. Let's jump ahead, Simon, to uh, Old Bull Lee or, or William Burroughs, sure. okay? Because yeah. he's a good way to get into the more modern stuff, the 80s, the 90s, the influences until he died. In the punk era, it was famous. If you were part of the punk scene on the Lower East Side of New York, you had to stop by the bunker, you know, Burroughs' sure. uh, gymnasium apartment and uh, pay homage to the great man. Let's talk about Burroughs. In many ways, I think, you know, while Burroughs was a key part of the triumvirate that emerged, that met in New York in 1944, in many ways, I don't think Burroughs quite fits the model of the freewheeling, let's get out on the road, let's see what's over the next horizon, let's live life to the full. Burroughs had a different philosophy of life. I mean, from a very early stage, he was a Harvard graduate. He was a man with few genuine ambitions. He did want to be a writer, but he seemed more interested in... uh, the sort of world of the low life, the criminal. He, he was obsessed from an early age in trying drugs of all kinds, and he spent the whole of his life experimenting with drugs. And I suppose in some ways we might see him as a model for the kind of drug excess that happened from the 1960s and onwards. But Burroughs, by some miracle, managed to live to a grand old age. Selling is more of a habit than using, Lupita says. Non-using pushers have a contact habit, and that's one you can't kick. Agents get it, too. Take Bradley the buyer, best narcotics agent in the industry. Anyone would make him for junk. I mean, you can walk up to a pusher and score direct. He is so anonymous, gray, and spectral, the pusher don't remember him afterwards. So he twists one after the other. One thing Burroughs was not interested in was the 1960s hippie peace and love vibe. He he was about as uninterested in the Woodstock nation as anyone could be. He had a kind of 
interest in libertarian politics. He was very anti-systems, uh, governments, control. He was anti-religion. But by the time the 1970s came around, uh, New York was going bankrupt, CBGBs was exploding, Manhattan, that great cradle of creativity, was more dystopian than utopian. Burroughs' angles and ideas on life, his darker visions of the world, fitted in very well with the kind of um, scenarios that people like Hell and Verlaine and Patti Smith and the other punks were, were engaged with. By the 1970s, he was already a middle-aged older man, yet he was able to catch the attention of punks of all kind, new wavers like Sonic Youth. And a little later on, Kurt Cobain became obsessed with the man. Like tuberculosis, folks. Christmas Eve, an old junkie selling Christmas seals on North Park Street. The priest, they called him. Fight tuberculosis, folks. He recorded with him. He tried to make a video with him. So Burroughs, after being out of sync with the hippie dreams of the 1960s suddenly came into vogue and, and connected with cyberpunk, dystopia, the downward spiral of New York City, and uh, he seemed to embody it. You mentioned the sort of darker dystopian vision that uh, Burroughs had. It seems to have a little more staying power, because you, you mentioned Bowie, you mentioned Cobain, you know, Al Jorgensen was a huge fan from Ministry. Bob Mould has talked uh, yes. extensively about the influence that Burroughs had on some of his lyric writing, Steely Dan and Soft Machine, both, you know, naming their bands after uh, Burroughs' work. Do you think that Burroughs, of all the beats, maybe has more staying power than the rest of that movement because he was more skeptical? I think you could be right. Norman Mailer, who was on the fringes of the beats, he once said that Burroughs was conceivably the only American writer possessed of genius. And I think it's probably from an artistic or aesthetic point of view that Burroughs' style is, uh, has had longevity, has lasted. It, 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 it's his technique that has been applicable to rock situations, and, and many artists have, have, have enjoyed experimenting in that way. You mentioned Burroughs' technique, the cut-up technique. How did he develop that? He met this uh, interesting artist called Brian Geisin at the Beat Hotel in Paris at the end of the 1950s. And by accident, Geisen had discovered that if you chopped a newspaper in half and then reassembled the halves in different ways, new words were created, new text was created. Uh, when you experiment with cut-ups over a period of time, you find that some of the cut-ups and rearranged text seem to refer to future events. I cut up an article on, uh, written by John Paul Getty and got... It's a bad thing to sue your own father. This was a rearrangement and wasn't in the original text. And a year later, one of his sons did sue him. Burroughs was gripped by the cut-up technique and, and he would continue to use it into the 1960s in his writing. But by the 1970s, all sorts of artists, from David Bowie to Kurt Cobain, as you mentioned, all the way through to Tom York, a radio head, they, they have seen the, the cut-up as a way of accidentally creating words, creating lyrics, creating interesting visions.
I agree that Burroughs is really important, Simon, but I was surprised to hear you say he might have the longest influence. Let me argue with both you and my partner, Mr. Cott, here. The indie rock lifestyle that persists to the current day is is very Kerouac at its heart. You know, bands do not get in the van and drive 14 hours a day to play in Madison, Wisconsin, and then drive another 12 hours to get to Minneapolis or whatever because they're making $100 a night. It's this Kerouacian ideal of the quest for kicks, that lust for life, the adventure, the road, you know, and there's never been a greater poet of the road as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, maybe you could go back to Ulysses or something. <laughs> um, but, but, but in terms of that idea of travel and adventure and living life and having new experiences, uh, I don't think there's any indie rock today, Greg or Simon, mm. without Kerouac. I, I have to agree with you, Jim, and, and say that perhaps Burroughs has affected the avant-garde end of rock and roll, whereas the mainstream, or certainly the indie world, which is almost mainstream these days, Mm. the indie world has definitely been affected by that Kerouacian spirit, that idea that round the bends, over that hill, beyond the horizon, there's something better and brighter and interesting and exciting. And in many ways, on the road could be seen as delivering that touring culture that bands have become immersed in for the last last 40 years sun's going down like a big bald head disappearing behind the boulevard it's sharky's night yeah it's sharky's night tonight and the manager says sharky he's not at his desk right now could I take a message Simon, where is the beat influence today in modern music? I mean, are, are you hearing evidence of it in hip-hop, let's say, or, or some of the indie rock that you've been hearing in the last decade or so? Is it still alive as an influence? It is still alive. I think hip-hop has taken from the beats, although the beats have a confusing relationship with African America, if you like. There were some black beats, Ted Jones... Leroy Jones, who became a Mary Baraka. Yes, the pain in dreams comes again. Race pain. People are people are people everywhere. Yeah, ooh, 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 yeah, ooh, 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 yeah. Are people. Yes, people. Every people. Most people. Ooh, 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 yeah. Ooh, 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 ooh. Most people in pain. Yes, the pain and pain today. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. It must be the devil. Oh, wow, oh, wow, it must be the devil, it must be the devil, it must be the devil, oh, wow, oh, wow, yeah, devil, yeah, devil, oh, wow, must be the devil, must be the devil, must is, must is, must is, must is be the devil, it can't be Rockefeller, it can't be him, no, Lord, it can't be DuPont, no, Lord, can't be, no, Lord, no way, no way, no, sir, no way, Jose. Amiri Baraka was a radical poet. He, he left behind the beats by the early 1960s because he found that that white, bourgeois, bohemian world had little for him as a black man in America, and, and he became much more interested in a more radical approach to racial equality. But I think people like Baraka and people like Gil Scott Heron, who took from Amiri Baraka, uh, acts like the Watts prophets and the last poets who emerged at the end of the 60s and early 70s. These people are the godfathers of hip-hop. The time is in the street, you know. 
us living as we do upside down and the new word to have is revolution people don't even want to hear the preacher spill or spill because god's whole card has been thoroughly peeped and america is now blood and tears instead of milk and honey hip-hop tells true stories of the street it tells true stories of politics of love i think there's a similar candor in some of the work that uh, has been done by major hip-hop artists people don't even want to hear the preacher spill or spill because god's whole card has been thoroughly peaked and america is now blood and tears instead of milk and honey but in terms of indie if we think of a band like death cab for cutie ben gibbard has taken a huge interest in Kerouac and, and that whole scene. And, and in fact, in 2009, Ben Gibbard and Jay Farrar created a fabulous soundtrack to, to a movie called One Fast Move or I'm Gone, based on Kerouac's Big Sur. Up the Hudson Valley, across New York State, to Chicago, then the plains. All so easy and dreamlike, crashing the salt flat daybreak. I hear I'll take you home again, Kathleen. Sad and fog winds out there to blow across the rooftops of eerie old hangover, San Francisco. I think indie artists are still caught up in that idea that the road possesses a freedom. As you were saying a little earlier, Jim, indie kids get in vans, they travel across the States, they travel across the UK or Europe, they play gigs, and I think the Kerouacian spirit is alive and well still in those gestures. I'm on the California Zephyr Watching America roll by Now I'm transcontinental 3,000 miles from my home I'm on the California Zephyr Watching America roll by We've been talking to Simon Warner, the author of Text and Drugs and Rock and Roll. Simon, thanks so much for being our guest. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Jim. Now we want to hear from you. What rockers do you think carry on the beat legacy today? Leave us a message about that or anything else on your musical mind at 888-859-1800. Coming up, it went platinum before it was even released. But is Magna Carta Holy Grail pure gold? We're going to review Jay-Z's new number one album in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Jesus died for somebody's sins but not mine Milton out of thieves Wild cord of my sleeve Thick Heartstone, my sins, my own, they belong to me, me. People say beware, but I don't care. The words are just rules and regulations to me, me. Coming up, coming down, right 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that is Jay-Z with a track called Tom Ford from his new studio album, Magna Carta, Holy Grail, the 12th studio album of Sean Carter's career. Born 1969 in Brooklyn, that would make him an elder statesman in hip-hop, Jim. He's had a sustained career over the last couple of decades. Not many people in hip-hop or any other form of pop music can really say that, and he has dominated you know, started out as a drug dealer. He went to the same high school as future rappers Biggie Smalls and Busta Rhymes, and nobody would put out his debut album, so he formed his own label and put it out himself when he formed the Rockefeller label in 1995. That Reasonable Doubt debut in 1996 sold a million copies, instantly established Jay-Z as one of the great new voices out of New York City and that great hip-hop scene there. Over the last two decades, he's sold 50 million records. He holds the record for the most number one albums on the Billboard charts with 12. Four number one singles, 17 Grammy Awards. His value has been put by Forbes magazine as $500 million. As he famously <laughs> said in one of his songs, I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman. And, and he is. He just struck a $5 million deal with Samsung to release his latest album as a cell phone application. And he announced it with a three-minute primetime TV ad that we uh, discussed a few weeks ago on this show. Now we have Magna Carta, Holy Grail. Here's a track from it. It's called Oceans from Jay-Z on Sound Opinions. Uh, boy still smelling like cocaine. White boat, white road, can he be more cleaner? The oil you spill that BP ain't clean up. I'm anti uh, Santa Maria. Only Christopher we acknowledge his wallets. Even like wash tins in my pocket. Black card go hard when I'm shopping. Boat docked in front of a man's picking cotton. Silken fleeces, lay on my cheeses. Oh my god, I hope y'all don't get seasick. See me in shit never saw. If it wasn't for these pictures, they wouldn't see me at all. Uh, whole world's in awe. I crash through glass ceilings, I break through closed doors. I'm on the ocean, I'm in heaven. Yacht, ocean 11. Elephants house on the board of a sailing lady Docked on the Ivory Coast Mercedes in a row Winding down the road I hope my black skin don't dirt this white tuxedo Before the boss got sure And if so Well, fuck it Because it's water drown my family This water makes my blood This water tells my story this water knows it all Go ahead and spill some champagne In the water Go ahead and watch the sun blaze On the waves of the ocean that is Oceans from album number 12 by Jay-Z, Magna Carta, Holy Grail. And it was the best track on the album, Greg. I'm going to tip my hand right off top. You know, we've made this analogy before, I believe, you especially being a basketball lover. But Jay-Z these days is like Michael Jordan after the second retirement. When you just had, you, you know, it was over, okay? But he's Jordan. Everybody's glad just to have him out there. But is he giving us his best? I don't think Jay-Z has really given us an album that stands up 
up with his best work since 2003 with the Black Album. Part of the problem has been lyrical for a very long time. He loves to tell us how much money he's made. Billions. It's not just millions. He's only worth $500 million according to Forbes, but he's going higher than that. I think it's important to remember that the last musical project was he was executive producing and overseeing the music for that horrible Baz Luhrmann Great Gatsby movie, which looked good and had nothing inside. That's what his lyrics are like. There's a lot of complaining about being a celebrity, how hard it is. He compares himself at one point to look at what happened to poor Hammer and also Mike Tyson. Really, Jay? (laughs) Hammer and Tyson? But then he's bragging about how many Basquiat paintings he has, how much art and how wonderful it is to be him. And then he goes back to whining some more about he can't even take his uh, little daughter for a walk without the paparazzi descending on. This is old stuff. You know, there's something here that he occasionally tries to get at a little deeper, saying that the, the holy grail of our current society is celebrity and what are you really going after? And when he's sampling or reworking Kurt Cobain and Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit, Here We Are Now, Just Entertainers is the way he works it. He's just beginning to get at something interesting. What is this drug and cult of celebrity? But he stops there. He stops there and just continues to tell us how wonderful and how talented and how rich he is and how lucky to have Beyonce. It's as good sounding as a modern hip-hop album can get. I think Timbaland's doing some great work and The Dream and Swizz Beats and Pharrell Williams, but it's ultimately just a burn it record. Yeah, Jim, I think you might be a little generous there. He has been coasting, as you've mentioned, and I think he's coasting most egregiously on this record. You know, some of the themes that he discusses on this record, as you said, attempts to get to, he did it better with Kanye West on the Watch the Throne record a couple years ago. I didn't like that record much either, but there was an attempt to engage this whole idea of what it means to be a new rich, part of the new rich African-American elite in this country, and the pressures associated with that and the responsibilities and the rethink of what, where they came from and where they are now. He doesn't get very far with the intellectualizing on this album. He's never been a particularly introspective rapper, but he's always been an incredibly clever and gifted one. I'm seeing a real lack of cleverness and giftedness on this record as well, though. I mean, it's like a laundry list of here's, here's the stuff I've got. I mean, I wish I had a buck every time he name drops a luxury item oh, that yeah. he's acquired. I mean, you could get pretty rich just doing that. But in terms of actual depth, actual emotional investment in this record, I'm not sensing it at all. So he surrounded himself with all of his superstar friends, you know, Justin Timberlake, and he's got Timbaland producing, and he's got Pharrell Williams coming in to do some some cameos. And they're all sort of celebrating themselves. You know, look how much we've acquired. Look how rich we are. A celebration of the self that just goes completely off the deep end. But at the same time, you're waiting for a moment of vulnerability or, or some sort of empathy to creep in. And he sort of touches on those areas on a couple of tracks. Jay-Z, Blue, Nickels and Dimes, where he kind of reveals a little bit about himself. And then just as quickly, he pulls the curtain back and we're back to talking about his stock portfolio again. So uh, it's a trash at record. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. 
as often as possible, we like to take a trip to the Desert Island. Jim, you've got the scuba gear on. You're about to swim out to the Desert Island and pop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. What are you going to play for us? Greg, our friends over at NPR Music have been doing this thing, uh, hit summer singles, going back a couple of decades, looking at the big songs of each summer and how that conjures up the feeling of the summer. And I have to think back to the first summer song that really stuck with me. 1971, I would have been, what, seven years old almost, when this song was released in August 71, a single by Paul and Linda McCartney from the album Ram, Paul's second album outside the Beatles, the only one credited to Paul and Linda. And I'm in Lavalette, New Jersey, staying staying in this shore town on the Jersey Shore and, you know, the boardwalk and you'd be running up to the boardwalk from the sand to get a hot dog or a piece of pizza or an ice cream cone. And this song was just playing all the time and it just stuck with me. Now, It's a silly song. It might even be a very, very bad song. We both have had problems with Paul McCartney's solo career, sometimes steeped in cheese and with that vaudeville music hall, everybody drinking at the pub kind of thing that he does. And this has a lot of that in it. I'm talking about the tune Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey. There's the slash in there. Above and beyond the silliness, it starts out as a melancholy dirge and then gets into this kind of vaudeville thing, which is just pure Paul cheese and this massive chorus. That's the chorus that always sticks with me. Hand across the water, heads across the sky. That's the killer part of this song. That's why... I always remember it, and I always associate it with the smell of the Jersey Shore. What is he talking about? Some people have said that Admiral Lionel Halsey was important in the life of Prince Albert. Other people have said it's pure doggerel. McCartney is stoned, uh, and it's just, you know, heads across the sky. Get it? But the best analyses that I've read of it is that this is actually a song about the Lend-Lease program between the United States and Britain during World War II, wherein America sent all these supplies, hundreds of thousands of, you know, Sherman tanks to help the British win the war and save the world. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. If you look at the lyrics, it's probably not even worth that much thought. What is worth anything is that killer, catchy hook. Here is Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey by Paul and Linda McCartney on Sound Opinions.
Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey by Paul and Linda McCartney, my Desert Island jukebox pick for the week. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have the British guitar hero and former Smiths band member Johnny Marr. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Annie Minoff. Our intern is Megan Murphy. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, he has seen the best minds of his generation, let me tell you. You never call my name. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, Sound Opinions. This is Randy in Portland, Oregon. And I'm just getting back from two weeks in Mexico, and I was so excited to hear your uh, visit to the rock music of Mexico. It was a great list, a lot of things to shop for. While I was down there, I was in a bar in Morelia, southern Mexico, and uh, saw a video by a band that's become very popular there called Moderato, and they have a song called Gracias. Just kind of everything that's great about power pop, but with a Mexican flair, and it kind of everything about positivity of young Mexico right now, and it's just become my favorite song on my playlist. So you might add it to yours, Moderato from Mexico City, the album. Charisma, the song is Gracias, and it is about as great as a Mexican earworm as you can hope to get without the tequila. All right, love you guys. Hi, my name is Tom, and I'm from Chicago, and I'm responding to the question about what I think of pop singers who are singing about same-sex marriage. If you are a singer and you are putting your music and your thoughts to the world, you have a responsibility to be respectful and affirming of humanity. And I think music can be a very powerful way to further the cause of human rights. Thank you. My name is Stalker Thomas, and I'm calling from Austin, Texas. And I want to comment about Macklemore's same love. I think it's awesome that he used a genre, hip-hop, which hasn't been known for being gay-friendly, to spread the message of same love. When I was in the third grade, I thought that I was gay because I could draw. My uncle was, and I kept my room straight. I told my mom, tears rushing down my face. She's like, Ben, you've loved girls since before pre-K. Tripping. And I really think that pop music and hip-hop should embrace people who are different and what is considered the norm same love you don't choose who you love you just happen to fall in love with the person that you fall in love with my name is trevor calling from seattle washington musicians have been being political for years and years and years woody guthrie the clash dylan etc and macklemore breaking out with what he's got to say about gay rights it just falls in line with all the others that come before him Joe Strummer, if he was alive today, would be saying, right on with your right on. 
Hi, my name is Matthew Reeder. I'm calling from Oak Park, Illinois, responding to the question about which band changed my perception of what music can do. When I was about 10 years old, I bought a cassette for a dollar out of a bin based on the artwork and the title of the cassette, The Art of Noise. It was Invisible Silence. I popped it in and had never heard anything like that. And from that point forward, music was different for me. Thanks. I really enjoyed the show. messages to give us your opinions on sound opinions call our hotline 888-859-1800 we'll be back next week with more sound opinions produced by wbez chicago and distributed by prx